Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So this week, I walked into my house and put my backpack down and walked into our living room and uh, three of our kids were watching TV, kind of. They had, they were facing their seats away from the TV, looking the opposite direction, and they had like a stool in front of each of them with like a hairbrush. And I walk in, there's like no greeting, they're just, they're listening, looking away from the TV, which is on, and all of a sudden I'm like, but what in the world are you guys doing? All of a sudden one of them hits their hairbrush and turns their, their chair around, and they're like, Dad, we're playing The Voice. And I look on the screen and they're watching the, the um, kind of music, vocal talent show, The Voice, and they're playing the judges. And so they're all looking away from the TV, seeing if they're gonna give a chair turn to the person who's singing and then giving commentary on the singer. And as cute as it was, it just reminded me how the things that we watch, the stories that we hear actually start to change us Dr. Uriah Hansen is a professor of psychology and neuroscience of Princeton University. And in the study that he led shows that the stories we believe drastically shape the lives that we live. When him and his research team recorded brain activity in two people, as one person told a story while the other listened, they found that the greater the listener's comprehension the more closely the brain pa- brainwave patterns mirror those of the storyteller. Because as you hear a story unfold, your brainwaves actually start to synchronize with those of the storyteller. Meaning that the story we're listening to, to the story that we believe, actually starts to change how we act and how we live. So the question is this, what is the grand story? What is the meta-narrative? What is the overarching storyline that you believe about life and you believe about reality? And in the same way my kids started to play into the show they were watching, we will start to live into the story that we believe. And this is what this morning, as I'm standing here, is really all about. It's about a story where everything becomes new. One of the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. The story of, this, of the Bible, the story of the scripture is what myself and well over a billion people around the world believe to be the story 
not just a story in history, but the story that shapes our sense of reality and our sense of hope and how we live. And this story concludes with the line, I am making all things new. What story do you believe? What story shapes your life? What's shaping the, the things that you lean into and the decisions that you make and the trajectory of your life? And the reality is, is it seems that there are two sets of stories that we have the choice to believe and to live into. We have the story of eternity, the story where God makes all things new. And you might be asking, well, what's the other story? Well, Revelation 21 says that it calls this the old order of things. The old order of things is going to pass away because behold, I'm making all things new. So what are these two juxtaposition stories? There's the story of eternity but the other story I would like to submit to you today is the story of entropy. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term entropy, it was discovered by Rudolf Clausius in the mid-1800s as a German mathematician and physicist. And as he was researching the second law of thermodynamics, what he began to state is all things trend towards disorder. As one goes forward in time, the net entropy or the degree of disorder of any isolated or closed system will always increase. Simply put, entropy is a simply a measure of disorder and effect. All aspects of our daily lives, in fact, you can think of it as nature's tax. Left unchecked, disorder increases over time. Energy disperses and systems dissolve into chaos. The more disordered something is, the more entropic we consider it. One psychologist said, Entropy is all around you. Cells within your body are dying and degrading. An employer or co-worker is making a mistake. The floor is getting dusty. And the heat from your coffee is spreading out. Zoom out a little and businesses are failing. Crimes and revolutions are occurring. And relationships are ending. Zoom out a lot further and we see the entire universe marching towards a collapse. And what this discovery was on a scientific level is that things naturally move towards disorder as energy begins to be dispersed. And you can see this if a, a building goes untended to after a few generations. And like I mentioned, you can see this in relationships. You can see this in our own body. And this is what the Bible called the old order of things. It's the, the order of entropy. It's the second law of ther thermodynamics at hand. And the reality is this is happening all around us. We are moving towards chaos. Unless you're under 25, you kind of have a little bit of an edge on us. But really after you peak right there, and even before that moment, you realize that we're moving in this direction. So what do we do? What do we do to, to fight this old order of things, this, this meta-narrative of things moving towards chaos? Well, we fight it. We fight it in a myriad of different ways. We try and slow it down. We try and reverse it. We try and do something to offset it. Whether it's how we eat or the political party of our choice we vote for or the exercise that we do, the therapy we engage with, the insurance that we purchase or the house that we remodel, we are constantly fighting against entropy. And the reality is, if 
entropies our story, the old order of things moving towards chaos, if that's all the story there is, it changes how we live. It changes the decisions that we make. We start making decisions like, well, I'm just going to enjoy things now because now is all I have. We start frantically just trying to slow it down by different procedures that we do or different techniques that we employ. Or we start to kind of hoard what we accumulate, thinking that we only have so much, so we better hold on to it. And so it doesn't take long to realize that if the story we believe is marked by a movement towards chaos and decay, the decisions we make, the hope that we have, the, the relationships we cultivate will move in that direction always. And so the question is this, is there a better story? Is there a better story than that? And that is what Easter is all about. It's what the resurrection is all about. It's what the story arc of the Bible is all about, is we believe that there's a better story being told. It's the story of all things being made new. It's everything that's been working against us and moving against us and moving towards chaos that someday will reverse and it will start moving towards life. And that begins to shape how you live. It shapes the relationships that you're in. It cultivates the hope that you have in your heart. D.A. Carson says, You are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And so what I want to do is in the next few minutes, I want to tell you a little bit about the story the Bible is telling about how all things become new. It begins in a garden, the Garden of Eden. It then finds itself in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus begins to move towards the cross. Then we find that the resurrection happens in a garden. And, and what's beautiful is that the whole story ends with this new creation in the garden. And in this, we find the setting, the conflict, the climax, and the resolution like any good story that it has. So let's begin with the setting. The Garden of Eden. This is a story of not only creation, but only three chapters into it. This is the story of decreation. In Genesis 3, 6-7, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And after they had eaten, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And this was the moment that entropy began. This was the moment that the movement towards chaos uh, began to move in that direction. Martin Luther called this moment when sin, when he called it a sin is life turned in on itself. A few verses later, after God is addressing the mess that had just been started, it says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim 
or an angel or angels and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so God in that moment says, listen, entropy, the movement towards chaos, death and decay is a reality, but it was never meant to be a fixed reality. So he places them outside of the garden, outside of where that tree is to guard them from the tree of life. And he does this by setting literally an angel in front of that gate so that they would not come in because of the fruit they had eaten and the eyes that were open. And keep those symbols in mind. As the story continues, we see humanity continue to move towards rebellion and towards unfaithfulness towards God and towards selfish ambition. And the result of that has been catastrophic. And this scene sets up the need for Jesus to come in as a Savior. Just two days ago, we celebrated Good Friday. And Good Friday was a moment where Jesus took on all of the curse, all of the brokenness, all of that disorder upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says he literally became sin for us. Everything turned in on itself so that we would become the righteousness of God. And Jesus finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to enter into the cross, just just reeling with the anxiety and the future pain that's about to befall him. But in obedience follows the will of the Father out of the garden and into, a, and into this temple where he's tried and then eventually onto a hillside where he dies on the cross. And while he's on the cross, there's an interesting exchange that happens. It says one of the criminals who hung there on the other side of him hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise isn't what we translate as heaven. The word paradise is actually better translated garden. Now think about that. Jesus is moments away from dying on the cross. The criminal standing on one side on his own cross just looks at him and says something very simple. Would you remember me as you enter into your father's kingdom? And he says, today you will be with me in the garden. What's happening here? And what we're starting to see unfold is a great reversal. Tony Morita says that Genesis, the book of Genesis, ends with Joseph's death. The book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. The book of Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But the gospel ends with Jesus' resurrection. And that changes everything. The next garden we find is two days later is Jesus is buried in a garden just outside the city in an empty tomb where a stone is rolled away. After the Sabbath day where Jews were prohibited from working, even for the burial preparations and traditions that would have gone on, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. 
There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Now, a couple of interesting things I would like to point out here. Number one is, why was the stone rolled away? We see that there's an angel who's obviously done this. But in John 20, 26, we see that Jesus' resurrection body, he can actually walk through walls. So, why is the stone rolled away? Did Jesus need an angel to do that? It doesn't seem that that would be the case. It doesn't seem that the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could come out. It seems that the stone was rolled away so that we could come in. Now, remember the Garden of Eden. They were put outside the garden, and an angel was there to make sure they did not come in. But after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they were in another garden, but this time the entrance was opened up, and the angel didn't keep them out. He said, come and see. Come and see the empty tomb. And what this is saying is, this is the great reversal. There is a new story that's being told. And what's really kind of just makes the point even more so is in John's account, says Mary Magdalene turned around after this and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know who it was, that it was Jesus, supposing him to be the gardener. So the very first vision of Jesus after his resurrection is she doesn't recognize him, but she's like, oh, you're the gardener. And this, this garden, this garden and gardener motif runs throughout scripture. And it's this beautiful invitation to view what God is doing in this story in a powerful new way. G.K. Chesterton says, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night. And when they were looking at was the first day of a new creation. With a new heaven and new earth and in a semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. Brian Zahn says, Jesus is the gardener who turns blighted wastelands into verdant gardens. Jesus is not a conductor punching tickets for a train ride to heaven. Christian hope is not so much about getting from earth to heaven as it is about getting heaven to earth. Jesus is not a lawyer to get us out of a legal jam with an angry God. God is not mad at sinners. Jesus told Mary to tell his disciples that his father was there. Father too. Jesus is not a banker making loans of his surplus righteousness. Modern people love economic metaphors, but they are terrible. Economic metaphors inevitably produce bad theology. Jesus is... A gardener, a gardener cultivating a resurrection life in all who will come to him. 
The conductor, lawyer, banker metaphors are mostly false, giving a distorted view of salvation. The gardener metaphor is beautiful and faithfully depicts the process of salvation in our lives. And so we are introduced to Jesus as a gardener, as the stone is rolled away in the garden, and they are no longer cast out, they are welcomed in. Now what happens after this is a series of events where Jesus shows up in people's lives in his resurrected state. One of them happens in Luke 24. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And their conversation went something like this. Jesus says, what are you talking about? They're like, are you kidding me? Haven't you heard of the events that happened and, and this Jesus character that was crucified? And then he begins to start telling them, don't, don't you know all of this was supposed to happen? And he says, from the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, he explained how Jesus had to fulfill these things. He talked about 360 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And what a beautiful two-hour lecture that would have been. But interestingly enough, him walking alongside them and probably the most intellectually stimulating and compelling, convincing lecture they ever could have heard did not open up their eyes to who he was. Skipping down to verse 28, it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. And then the, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. So they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembling together and said, it is true. The Lord has risen. Now again, think back to the setting of the story. What sparked the, the involvement of chaos and sin and entropy in the world? Wasn't it taking the bite? Wasn't it a meal that it says in Genesis 3 opened up their eyes? Now think about how fascinating this is. Not only was there an angel at the garden, not blocking them, but inviting them in. But then the people who recognized who Jesus was, their eyes were opened at the bite at a meal. This is the great reversal of the story. This like any beautiful story, we're seeing this amazing climax happen that the conflict is being resolved in this beautiful redemptive way. But there's something here that we can't take for granted. It seems that in these two men's case, their eyes weren't open because they heard a really compelling lecture. I gotta be, I gotta be honest. I am always tempted every Easter to spend the whole time just talking about the incredible, convincing evidence of the resurrection. It's arguably one of the most sound historical events that has ever happened in the ancient world. And if you're interested in that or you don't feel convinced that the resurrection actually happened, just do a quick just do a quick Google search and you will find thousands of articles from historians and from scientists about the validity of the resurrection. But 
the reason we're not doing that today is because that's not what opened up these people's eyes. It was a meal. It was something highly relational, which actually makes sense when Jesus in John 17 says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. And what he's saying is, eternity is not somewhere that we're going someday. Eternity is not something like a destination that we're waiting for. Eternity begins in relationship, in deep intimacy with God. It's when our eyes are opened. And maybe you watching this are on your own road. You've, you've been trying to weigh the evidence, but I just want to tell you something. Until you experience the deeply relational and welcoming love of God, the eyes of your heart can't be open because it's not about the information that you learn. It is about the transformation that you receive. A quick story to illustrate this. My sister is a couple years younger than me. During COVID, uh, started dating this guy on who she met online, but he lived in London. And because of the travel bans, they weren't able to meet for 400 days or more. And, but over those 400 days, they talked every single day. They would Zoom. They would do Zoom dates. It was really cute. They'd have like themes and they would like eat the same meal or they would watch a movie together on Zoom. And they were trying to build this relationship. And in a sense, they had. It was really amazing watching my sister fall in love with this guy. But after 400 years, 400 years, after 400 days, the travel ban lifted. And they were able to meet each other. And all of a sudden, nerves fled in because they're like, we've actually never been together. And so my sister hops on a plane, flies to London, gets off the, gets off the plane, and she sees the man that she's spent countless hours having conversations with, gotten to know deeply, and who they've fallen in love, and yet they've never seen each other. And then they embrace Right in that moment, there's something else that happened. And they spent the next two weeks together, not a moment apart, exploring London and getting to know each other and knowing what it's like to hold your hand and knowing what it's like to give you a hug and, and all these things. And at the end of those two weeks, um, he proposes and they get engaged. And I love that story because I, it seems to be what's happening at the resurrection. There's people who know Jesus. They've been with him. They've had conversations with them. They've even seen all the evidence of pointing to who he is. But that wasn't enough. There had to be a moment where their heart came alive, where they met. This happened with the two men on the road to Emmaus. It was at the meal. It was at the table. It wasn't in the information. It was when their eyes were open. Mary, who we just talked about, it wasn't when she saw the empty tomb, which she saw. It wasn't even when she initially saw Jesus close by and thought he was a gardener. It was the moment that Jesus said her name, said Mary, says, then she realizes who it is. You think about Thomas, who says, I'm not going to believe unless I see his scars, unless I, I can put my hands in his hands and in his side. But interestingly enough, all it took was for Jesus just to show up in the room. And he said, I believe. And I think that's the hope this Easter is that this is an amazing story. This is a beautiful story that we are invited into, but there's no amount of evidence, although it's there, that will ever convince us 
as much as what happens when we actually have an encounter with the living God. And that's what he's wanting to do today. Wherever you are and wherever you're watching this, he wants to show up in your living room or in your car and he wants to call your name. He wants to break bread with you. He wants to be in the room with you because this is the story of the resurrection is moving towards us in relationship. It's what it's all been about the entire time is restoring and reconciling us back to God so that we could know him again and by the way this is how the story of the bible ends did you did you notice that in revelation 21 which we read er earlier it says the picture is that now they're dwelling together god's dwelling place is with man and his and his is with god and there's no longer any separation this is the culmination and the resolution of the story if you will and this story, as they're coming together, the very last chapter of the Bible describes this. On either side of the river is the tree of life, and it's 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be there anymore. Entropy ends. Death is no more brokenness and chaos and disease stops. This is the story of all things being made new. And it's the story you're invited into. It's the story of the resurrection. It's the story of what Jesus has done. Now, I got to tell you, it was amazing when my sister got to meet Kieran. Katie and Kieran getting to know each other. But after they got engaged, they began to start planning a wedding. My friends, that's where we're at. We are waiting, planning the wedding where we will be reunited forever. And truly, entropy does come to an end because you might be watching this and it's like, well, that's, that's a great story, but we're still in the thick of it. We're still in the place where our bodies are failing. We're still in the place where relationships take a lot of work. We're still in the place where the environment around us feels like it is moving towards chaos and decay. And so I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, of where we are going. We're going towards the garden, new creation, where all things will be restored. And that means two things for us. Number one, a beautiful participation and number two, a stunning destination. Heaven is not something that we're waiting for. Heaven is something that we get to help bring here. It's Jesus' prayer for us. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because of the resurrection and because Jesus showed up in the flesh with real people and had real meals and interactions, we get to do the same. We get to be participants in bringing the resurrection reality here, the reality of all things being made new. We get to do that in how we live and what we invite people into. I love what Beth Moore says. She says, the power of the resurrection means that nothing but the tomb is meant to be empty. Nothing but the tomb is meant to be empty. We can invite people in the fullness of life. Dr. Russell Moore says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. 
So there's joy that marks the life of the people who, who live into the story of the resurrection. And we get to do this together. One of the things we are praying as a staff that we felt called into is not only is Easter a moment where God is calling people back to himself and reconciling people back to him, but it's also a moment where God is calling his people to reconcile back to the church, back to his people. Because all the church is, is it is a community of heaven firmly planted here on earth. It's where we get to live out love and forgiveness and grace, where we get to start practicing eternity over entropy. We get to start living out the reality of all things being made new. And the last thing I want to say is because of the resurrection, we have a stunning destination. Ray Orland says, Jesus' resurrection proves that heaven is not a disappointment we'll have to settle for. It means we'll stop settling and we'll finally start living. That's what the resurrection invites us into. And that's where we're heading in the great story of eternity. Which means, as Dr. Tim Keller says, all death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. So even though we live in this world where we are given 80 years, 90 years, Lord willing, tomorrow's not promised, and we consistently are fighting the effects of gravity and the effects of entropy and the effects of, of the hard tilling of the soil of relationships, all those things are going on. I think we need to remember this Resurrection Sunday, that He has made all things new and we get to live into that right now and so if you're struggling and you feel like life has been marked by death i want you to be reminded that our king has invited us into life we get to be brought back into the garden if you've never <clears throat> oriented your life around the story of resurrection if you have only done your best to fight against entropy, I would encourage you today to change your story. I would encourage you today to live into a better one. But this can't be a story you made up. It's a story that was lived for you. The story that has already been written, being written, and is going to be written towards all things becoming new. And the, the beautiful thing is the only thing you need to do to start living into that story is actually beginning by just saying, Jesus, similarly to the criminal next to him on the cross, remember me. And in that moment, like Mary, as you're searching for Jesus, would you hear him call your name? Or maybe like the men on their way to Emmaus, and you're hearing all of the evidence and you're weighing it out and you're observing Maybe today is the day that you actually sit at the table with Jesus. You invite him in to what hundreds of years Christians have said. It's inviting him into your heart. It's this picture of Revelation. says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. He who would open the door, I will come in and dine with him. And my prayer more than anything else today is if that you've never done that before, today would you open up the door of your heart 
and invite the one who can come in and make all things new. Confess who you are, your sin, your shortcomings. Ask for his forgiveness that he's already displayed for you on the cross and commit your life to continuing to live in the way of Jesus. And if you've done that, will you just do me a favor? Would you send us a note? Go on our website, lightsandiego.com, and just tell us, like, hey, I pray this prayer. We'd love to send you a Bible. We'd love to know your story of God making things come alive in you. So I'm just going to go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've made all things new. Jesus, we thank you that this Resurrection Sunday, Lord, we can recognize that you have created the great reversal of the story. And Lord, we're asking that you would do a deep work in every person's heart who's listening to this. Open up the eyes of our heart. Invite us to the table. Call our name. Show up in our room. And Lord, I pray that this would be a an opportunity for us not only to hear something, but our whole lives to change. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you that you've risen and you've invited us to do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.